Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Chris Durbin. I am one of the pastors at uh, Shoreline Church, which is in one of the east side suburbs of Cleveland. So I bring you greetings from across I-90, um, from warm, sunny Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, <laughs> I was excited to come to Erie because I think it's clear that God's working in Erie because I don't know if any other city, uh, I think it's only God who can bring uh, Browns fans and Steelers fans and Bills fans together in one city, in one church. That's pretty amazing. Uh, if I, don't know, I don't know if there's any greater testimony uh, to the grace of God. Um, but I'm happy to be here. It's a privilege to be here. I have been friends with uh, Mike and Sarah for a long time. Uh, we grew up at Parkside Church together in the youth ministry, uh, so I've known them since I was in middle school. Uh, and Mike and Sarah, uh, for myself, for my wife, they've been those, those rare uh, lifelong friends that follow you through different seasons of life and uh, they've been a great encouragement to me, and I can safely say that uh, if it wasn't for uh, Mike's friendship, for his encouragement, uh, for his impact on my own life uh, over the years, uh, I probably would not be in ministry now. I probably wouldn't be a pastor. I probably wouldn't be uh, speaking here this morning. So uh, if this goes poorly, uh, you know who to blame. Um, so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to uh, Genesis 39, Genesis chapter 39. Uh, we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning, uh, thinking about how God worked uh, in and through the life of Joseph. Uh, so you can follow along as I read in Genesis 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. 
But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. Well, please uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, pray that your word will take root in our hearts, that you'll convict us of our sin, you'll lead us to cling to our Savior, and you'll glorify your name. In Christ's name, amen. In 1944, at an internment camp in China, Eric Little ran his last race. Now, many people are familiar with Eric Little, who uh, was a Scottish runner and devout Christian uh, from the movie Chariots of Fire, uh, which tells the story of how Little uh, won a gold medal in the 400 meters at the 1924 Olympics after refusing to run in his favorite event, the 100 meters, uh, because the race was held on a Sunday. Uh, But what a lot of people don't know about Eric Little is that uh, after the Olympics, he actually left athletics and became a missionary to China. And he served there for nearly 20 years until World War II broke out. And after Pearl Harbor, Eric Little, along with other Americans uh, in China, they were gathered together and uh, taken to the Weinson internment camp. And there in that crowded, uh, dark, hostile environment, uh, Little stood out. Landon Gilkey, who was a survivor of the camp, he said of Little, uh, he was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to, it came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. And then Duncan Hamilton, who uh, wrote a biography of Little a few years ago, he wrote, his heroism was to be utterly forgiving in the most unforgiving circumstances. And so Eric Little, he experienced unbelievable Uh, unexpected suffering during the war. And yet in the midst of that suffering, he was able to be a source of light and strength to those around him in the camp. He was successful in the midst of his suffering. And I was reflecting on his story this week because I was thinking about this passage in Genesis 39 because here in this chapter, we see another young man who was faced with unbelievable and unexpected suffering. And yet he was able to be a source of blessing to others in the midst of his suffering. Like Eric Little, Joseph was also successful in suffering. And as we look at this story today, my hope is that uh, we'll learn how we too can be successful when we face suffering. How we too can uh, have hope when we face hardship. How we can be utterly forgiving in unforgiving circumstances. Specifically this morning, we'll look at uh, two ways that Joseph was successful in the midst of uh, suffering. First, we'll see how he was successful in the midst of trials. And secondly, how he was successful in the midst of temptation. So trials and temptation. And as you look at these two parts of the story, I think we'll see uh, the key that helps us, uh, that allowed Joseph and that allows us to suffer successfully in the midst of trials and temptations. So first... 
Let's look together at how Joseph was successful in the midst of trials. If you turn back a couple chapters to Genesis 37, you'll see how uh, Joseph, the favored younger son of Jacob, was uh, betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. And he was taken into Egypt and sold to the house of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So Joseph was delivered from the comfort and the love of his father's household and brought into uh, suffering and servitude in a foreign country. And for some of us here this morning, this this story of unexpected suffering is sadly all too familiar. Maybe you're here and you've also experienced a radical shift into hardship. Maybe you're walking through an unexpected diagnosis or uh, a sudden job loss or an unforeseen confession. Maybe you've been hurt by someone you trusted or you're separated from someone you love. Or you're anticipating the loss of something that you treasure. Now, in these circumstances, it would have been easy for Joseph to despair, to uh, give in to bitterness, to doubt God. But that's not what happens in the story. We're told in the first five verses of chapter 39, we're told no less than five times that the Lord was with Joseph and caused all that he did to succeed. Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers. He'd been separated from his earthly father. But he had not been abandoned by his heavenly father. God is present with Joseph, even in the midst of his suffering. He is faithful to Joseph in slavery. And he allows Joseph's work to be successful. He blesses it. In fact, he makes Joseph so successful that Potiphar gives him authority, puts him over his entire household. The presence of God empowered Joseph to flourish in slavery even to the point of being a blessing to his captors. And I think that this is the message of this passage, the answer to the question of how we can suffer successfully. I think what this chapter shows us is that uh, God's presence was the key to Joseph's success in the midst of suffering. God's presence is the key to success in the midst of suffering. Because in unforgiving and seemingly hopeless circumstances, God's presence and his faithfulness to Joseph was his strength. It was his very life. In slavery, everything he had was stripped away from him. His home, his father, his family, his coat, his comfort. All that he had left was the faithfulness of God. But as Joseph came to discover, and what we can discover as well is that ultimately... God's faithful presence is the only circumstance that truly matters. His steadfast love is the only thing that we truly need to have life and hope. And we see this more clearly as we go on in the story and uh, see how Joseph continues to go through trials. Because just as things were starting to look up in Potiphar's household, uh, Joseph is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and uh, he's sent to prison. We'll come back to Potiphar's wife in a moment here because some wild stuff goes down. But at the end of chapter 39, we find Joseph in prison. He's been falsely accused. Once again, everything has been taken away from him. He's placed in unrelenting circumstances and unforeseen suffering. And again, the refrain over and over again is that the Lord was with Joseph in prison and caused everything he did to succeed. Once again, God raises Joseph to a place of authority. 
God even uses him to bless others, to bless the captain of the prison. God's presence continues to be the key to Joseph's flourishing, to Joseph's successful suffering in the midst of hardship. And as we look closer at the story, and as we look ahead to the rest of the book of Genesis, what we'll see is that uh, God's faithfulness in presence, it wasn't just meant for Joseph alone in his suffering. God wasn't faithful to make Joseph successful just for the sake of Joseph's livelihood or his own comfort or his own survival. God was faithful to Joseph in his suffering because God had a plan for his suffering. Specifically, as you see, as you go through the book of Genesis, that by bringing Joseph into slavery and then sending Joseph to prison, God was working out a series of events where he would eventually use Joseph to save thousands of people from a famine and to save Jacob and Joseph's brothers, the people of God, from certain death. As you see at the end of Genesis in chapter 40, Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God had a plan. He had a purpose. He was faithful. He was present. And he used Joseph's suffering to accomplish his plan to rescue his people. And so it's important for us today to see that even though God doesn't always promise to remove our painful circumstances, he is always present in them with us. And he is always going to use them to fulfill his promises and to accomplish his plan Even in suffering, God is still working to make us more like Christ and to use our circumstances to reveal his love and his faithfulness, both to us and to the other people around us. So being successful in the midst of suffering, is it's not just about doing the right thing, but it's about remembering the bigger picture. Remembering that ultimately, even as we suffer, God is still faithful to transform us and use us for his glory and for the good of others. And the clearest example I have of this in my own life uh, is the story of my parents. Uh, Two years before I was born, my dad was diagnosed with MS, with multiple sclerosis. Uh, He's had it for over 30 years. He's in an electric wheelchair. Um, And so my entire life, I've watched this disease take things from him and from my mom and from our family. I've seen uh, the burdens it placed on them that they should never have had to have have borne. But as the years went by, I also came to understand that even though God never took away our hardship, even though in many ways it got worse and worse and worse and continues to do so, uh, God had a purpose in it that was greater than anything we could have imagined. Because in the late 80s, when my dad was diagnosed, he was in medical school uh, on a Navy scholarship. And in an interesting way, uh, God worked in that time because uh, if he had graduated and been healthy, he would have served in the Navy for at least four years, uh, which would have sent him and my mom probably all over the world, probably to a naval base on one of the coasts somewhere. Um, But because he got diagnosed with MS, he was medically discharged, and my parents stayed in Northeast Ohio. And that's where they had my brother and I. Um, And because we were in Northeast Ohio, 12, 13 years later, uh, my parents met some people who invited them to a Bible study. Uh, who led them to Christ, who led us to a church where uh, my brother and I came to faith in Christ. We never would have been uh, in that situation to meet those people, to land at that church, uh, if it hadn't been for uh, this hardship, for this diagnosis. And so even though God never removed our circumstances, even though uh, my family had to endure suffering like all of us do 
at times in our lives. God was faithful to use even our suffering, even our hardship to accomplish his plans, to do something more wonderful than we ever could have imagined. See, our suffering does not hinder his faithfulness. Our hardship does not remove us from his presence. We are not abandoned by him. We are not forsaken by him. It may be hard to see that or feel that in moments of great pain. But if we resist the urge to harden our hearts, to dwell in bitterness, if we take our pain and our hardship to God and to rest in his presence, to uh, trust in his faithfulness, we will find hope and strength beyond what we could have imagined. Because his presence is the key to being successful even in the midst of trials. His presence is also the key to being successful even in the midst of temptation. And that's our second point this morning. Joseph was also successful not only in trials but also in temptation. Because in between Joseph's suffering as a slave and his suffering as a prisoner, we find an episode where Joseph faces a different kind of suffering, a kind of suffering that many of us are also uh, all too familiar with. He faced the suffering of unrelenting temptation. Because as Joseph worked in Potiphar's house, he was noticed by Potiphar's wife. And she began to demand that Joseph would come to bed with her. And she didn't make this demand just once. She made, it says she made it day in and day out for what was likely years. So Joseph, he's placed in a painful situation. God has graciously placed him in a position of success and authority. But his master's wife was making demands that Joseph knew he had to resist. But because he was a slave, he had no rights. So by resisting Potiphar's uh, wife, he was risking the anger of someone who had complete control over his life. And in many ways, it would have been easier for him to give in. He could have easily avoided years of fear and discomfort, potential pain and suffering. And there may have even been a part of his sinful flesh that had a hard time not giving in to such unrelenting temptation. And yet he doesn't do it. He resists. He flees from temptation. And so what was it that allowed Joseph to resist such strong temptation? How was he able to make such a hard choice over and over and over again? Well, in order to answer that question, uh, allow me to share just an illustration that might not seem related at first, but I think if you track with me, I think it's really helpful. Because if you've ever seen or read the book or seen the Broadway play, uh, the musical Les Miserables, there's a young girl, Cosette, who uh, has a song where she sings about a castle on a cloud. And in the song, this girl who's been forced into a life of servitude, sweeping her master's floor, she sings uh, about a, a castle on a cloud where she can escape and be reunited with her mother, where there's no floors that she would need to sleep, sweep. And so in the midst of her hardship, this dream gives her hope. It's what she's living for. And in his book, You Are What You Love, uh, the philosopher James K.A. Smith, he describes how to be human is to have your own version of a castle on a cloud. See, all of us have some dream, some hope that we're living for. We all have some desire that drives and shapes our lives. Something we love that, uh, that shapes the decisions we make, the things we do, the hopes we have, the habits we practice. For some people, their castle on a cloud, their ultimate hope is to get married and have a family or to have a great career 
to get their dream job or their dream house, to get into the right school, to find the right person, to experience uh, meaningful things or feelings. We live our lives leaning towards these desires, holding on to them even in the midst of suffering. And for Joseph, his castle on a cloud, it could have been his own survival. Every decision he made could have easily been oriented around his desire to, uh, to live, to survive, to better his hopeless situation. But if that was the case, then he probably would have given in to Potiphar's wife because to deny her was to risk his own survival, was to risk his own livelihood. His castle in a cloud could have also been his own selfish pleasure because after all, he'd been through some really hard things. And maybe he had a right to experiencing something that felt good for once. And this would have come with the added bonus of getting back at his master. And so if this was the case, if uh, his, his ultimate desire was his own selfish pleasure, then he would have given in to temptation. But what we see is that Joseph does neither of these things. By denying Potiphar's wife, he reveals that his ultimate desire is not his own survival. It's not his own pleasure. But rather, his ultimate desire is to please God. This is his castle on a cloud. In verse 9, he says to Potiphar's wife, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, the issue is clear for Joseph. By giving in to temptation, he would not only be betraying his master, but he would be betraying his heavenly father. He would be sinning against God. And God has been faithful to Joseph. He's been present with Joseph in the midst of suffering. His faithful presence has been made so powerfully clear to Joseph that all he wants to do is to please the God who has been so faithful to him. So the idea of sinning against God in this way, it's unthinkable to Joseph. And so the presence and the faithfulness of God is the key to his success in resisting temptation. And it's the key for, for us as well as we seek to resist temptation. Because the key to resisting temptation is not just to avoid tempting circumstances or to go find an accountability partner. Those, stuff, those things are helpful and, and they're good and we should pursue them. But ultimately, you and I will only resist temptation if we truly have our hearts transformed and oriented ultimately towards God alone. The only way you and I will truly resist the temptations of this world is if our hearts are truly captured and desire something that this world can never give us. The only way to truly resist temptation is to desire to please God more than anything else. Because we struggle with sin and temptation because we desire other things more than God. And we're willing to sin to get those things. At its core, our problem with sin, with temptation, it comes down to idolatry. We worship our way into temptation. And we can only worship our way out. So how do we do this? How do we worship our way out of our temptation? How do we, uh, like Joseph, gain hearts that desire to please God more than anything else? I think the answer is that, like Joseph, we need to be transformed by the faithful presence of God. Like Joseph, we have to come and see that even when we are going through trials, even when we are going through temptations, that God is present with us. That he is faithful to work in and through our circumstances to fulfill his promises and to accomplish his plans. 
How do we know that this is true? How do we know this for sure? We know this because God has already done it. He's already been more present and more faithful in our trials and in our temptations than we ever could have imagined. See, our selfish desires, our sin has created a world filled with trials and with temptation. But just like Joseph, God did not abandon us in our suffering. No, instead, he sent his son, Jesus, to come and be our perfect Joseph. You see, Jesus, too, left the comfort and love of his father's household and came to a foreign land. But where Joseph was taken against his will, Christ willingly left his father's side and came from heaven to earth. He came to be present with us. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us. And like Joseph, Christ experienced temptation and he perfectly resisted it. And like Joseph, Christ was betrayed by his own people. And he was led and thrust into undeserved suffering on the cross. But just as with Joseph, Christ's suffering was part of God's ultimate plan to rescue his people. What man intended for evil, God intended for ultimate good. Because you see, Christ came not just to be present in the midst of our suffering, but to take our ultimate suffering on himself. Christ came and he perfectly resisted temptation because you and I give in to temptation all the time. He came and perfectly obeyed God because you and I are disobedient sinners. And at the cross, Christ exchanged his success for our failure. He paid the price for sin that we deserve to pay. He bore our ultimate suffering, the ultimate suffering of God's wrath for sin. And he bore that for us. So when we look to Christ, we see someone who was perfectly successful in trials and in temptation, who was perfectly successful in suffering, in ultimate suffering, and who did that for us. So here at the foot of the cross is where worship happens. It's at the foot of the cross where our hearts can be transformed, where they can be renewed and reoriented towards God where we can be transformed and given the ultimate desire to please the God who has been faithful to us in Christ. Because at the cross, God, he was completely present in our suffering to the point of taking our suffering upon himself. He was completely faithful using the suffering even of his own son to bring us salvation. And when you see this, when you believe it, when you rest in it, when you shape your life around it, it changes everything. Because you may be here today, you may be going through unforgiving trials. You may be struggling with unrelenting temptation. And your circumstances may not change. But in Christ, we have a hope that is greater even than the worst of circumstances. A hope that is greater even than death. Because Christ's suffering didn't last forever. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay buried. He rose again. Not even death could destroy the faithfulness of God. Christ is alive. So trust in him. Cling to him. Let his faithfulness transform your heart and lead you to want to be faithful to God. Let his presence strengthen and secure you 
and help you to even be a blessing to others in the midst of your own trials and temptations. He's perfectly present. He has been perfectly faithful. He's worthy of our trust, even in the hardest of times. And as I close and as we're thinking about this, I want to uh, return again to the scene of Eric Little's last race. Because as he was in this internment camp in China, uh, he was asked to participate in a race by some of the other prisoners. And by the time of this race, Little had been in the camp for almost two years. And unbeknownst to him, uh, he was suffering from a brain tumor. Six months after this race, he would die in the camp. He would never uh, see his family again. He would never even meet his youngest daughter. So here was a man who endured great suffering, who is literally dying, and he's preparing to race. Why? Because little knew that the other people in the camp needed to see him run. He knew that they needed the hope and the joy of seeing him run in this dark and hostile place. And he couldn't refuse their request because everything in his heart wanted to serve these people. In the midst of unimaginable suffering, this dying man didn't give in to bitterness or despair. He poured himself out for the people around him. He gave everything of himself in service to others because he knew that Christ had given everything of himself in service to us. Eric Little knew that no matter how much his body failed him, and no matter how dire his circumstances got, he had a hope that was greater than any darkness this world has to offer. He had a security that no sickness or war could touch. He had a life that was indomitable by death. His, his hope was secure in the presence and in the faithfulness of God in Christ. And so he ran. And a year after Eric Little died, his wife Florence received two pieces of paper in the mail. And these were uh, pages that had been on Eric Little's bedside as he was dying in the camp hospital. And in the top left-hand corner of the second page, written by a dying man who had experienced unimaginable suffering, written by a broken man who would never run again, was written four words, all will be well. And thanks be to God that because of Christ, no matter what trials or temptations we must endure, we too can say the same thing. All will be well. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're humbled as we're reminded of your grace in Christ. As a reminded of the story of Joseph, uh, his desire to please you, and we confess in our hearts how often we don't seek to please you, how often we seek to please ourselves or to please other people, how often we're ultimately living for our own uh, pleasure, our own security, our own um, achievement. Lord, help us to repent of these things and rest in Christ alone. Help us to look to your word and see there how great your presence and how great your faithfulness are, that you are ultimately present and faithful to us through your Son, through his death and resurrection. 
So help us to live out of that faithfulness. Help us to be transformed by your grace to us in Christ. Even as we face hardship, even as we face trials and temptation. Help us to cling to the one who is perfectly successful in suffering for us. Help us to run to him, to rest in him, to rejoice in him. And as we worship you now and as we uh, give back to you in a time of offering, transform our hearts, lead us to repent of sin, and lead us to praise the one in whom we can proclaim all will be well. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.